2: Welcome to Soft Talk Radio. I'm your host, Neil Bradley. With me tonight, Joe Quinn. Hi there. Juliana Baumbuen. Hello. And Pierre Lescodon. Hello. This week, we're delighted to be talking with Lierre Keith. Lierre is an American author, um, an activist. She's the author of one book in particular that we just can't get enough of. We've been talking about it for a couple of years. I think it's been out three years. It's called The Vegetarian Myth. Food, Justice, and Sustainability. It's stimulated a lot of discussion online, even on our own forum. I think we have a thread on this book running into 100 pages or more um, for good reason. There's a lot of great insights, a lot of good research has gone into it. And um, we're delighted to have Pierre here with us today. Pierre, can you hear us?
3: Yeah, loud and clear. And thanks for having me on your show.
4: Welcome, it's great to have you. So we're going to discuss the vegeta- vegetarian myth. Maybe the the f- first question that pops up in my mind is, uh, in, in the beginning of your book, no, I, have, I have
1: a a more primordial question than that. What is the vegetarian myth? That's the title of the book. It sounds like there's a myth around vegetarianism. Is it is it something that uh, uh, can be summed up in a, in a few words or couple of paragraphs yes yeah.
3: yes we can do this um so i would say there are three parts to the vegetarian myth and i i just want to start by saying i, I come to this as someone who was actually a vegan for almost 20 years so i have mm. been in that world you know as deeply as one can be um, and there are three main reasons that people take up a vegetarian or a vegan diet the first is that they think it's better for the planet um, the second is that they think it's better for human justice So more people will be fed if we only eat this way. And the third reason is that they think it's better for their health. And so altogether, those, I think, make this thing called the vegetarian myth. Now, I want to be clear that I didn't call it the vegetarian lie. There are pieces of truth in all of this, um, but put Mm -hmm. together, none of this actually holds up. And it took me 20 years to figure that out. So... I wanted to try to reach the people who care the most about those subjects, about the earth, about justice, and about their health, and try to explain to them why they needed a bigger perspective, Um, or at least to try to engage more with the information. Because I think for a lot of us, we think we have the answers, and, you know, we hang on to these ideologies sometimes too strongly. And it's really hard when we come up against counter-information Um, to then look at that information. So my goal was to try to reach the other people who were still in that world and explain to them what I had found out because it turned out that a lot of what I believed was simply not true. And it wasn't that the underlying values were wrong. It's that the information that I had wasn't complete. And with bigger information, I ended up making very different choices.
4: And um, apparently during this uh, process of realization, uh, you had a, a crucial experience when you decided, yeah, I'm a vegan, so I'm going to grow my own food. And, uh, of course, to grow my own food, being ve- vegan, I won't use animal products. And then you started to realize that it was not this easy to eat without relying on animal products and without uh, participating to the destruction of the planet. Is, that, uh, is it the way this experience happened?
3: Yes, and it happened over a few years, of course. We, I mean, we don't have these realizations overnight, mm-hmm. but... You know, i you not know, heard that the, one of the best things you can do is try to grow your own food. And that was something that I was very passionate about. I wanted to be engaged, you know, in the whole cycle beginning to end. But the problem was that I didn't understand what soil actually is. And it's a living thing. In fact, it's billions of living things. And many of those little things are animals. Um, and it's those creatures that keep the world alive quite literally they are the ones that are doing the basic work of life so they're making nutrients available to the rest of us who who simply can't do that Um, we can't see most of them right they're smaller than our eyes can perceive but with a microscope certainly this whole world opened up to scientists and then just to regular people we can all see now what they're doing and without them there would be no life so it's up to them you know to keep the world moving we're just kind of like the icing on the cake on top here I mean nothing we do is really that important So, you know, back to soil, I mean, this is the basis of terrestrial life, is this living thing called soil, and, you know, it's hungry. And what it wants to eat is dead plants and dead animals. And I didn't understand that. I think a lot of us think of soil as just, like, insensate dirt, you know, just kind of matter that just sits there. And it's not. It's teeming with life. So if Mm -hmm. you don't feed it, it dies. You know, it's got to have what it needs. And that's what soil is, is the dead bodies of animals and plants looked upon by even smaller creatures um, to recycle those nutrients and make them available again into that whole cycle of life. So I, you know, came up against this when I tried to garden as a vegan. Um, the The ground really wanted bone meal and it wanted blood meal. You know, it wanted dead animal parts. Mm-hmm. and It was really horrifying to me as I think it is to a lot of a lot of vegetarians that come up against this, and some of them refuse to do it, and every year their garden gets more and more depleted. Their vegetables are tiny, um, and they are more and more depleted every year trying to eat this food that just has no minerals in it. I mean, they're literally mining the soil. They're pulling the minerals out and then not replacing them.
0: Um, mm-hmm.
3: So that was a real problem for me, and I tried to find various ways around it, you know, sort of in my head, making little workarounds, but it's In the end, I just had to admit it, like the soil wants manure, and it wants some dead animals in there, and that was really hard. And then the other problem was that you have to kill things to garden, and I didn't want to kill things. You know, I thought that I really wanted my life to be possible without death, and it wasn't, you know, so I was telling myself a story, and it was a very lovely story, but it's a fairy tale, you know. So in order for me to eat, it meant that all these other creatures couldn't eat that food. So we were engaged in a battle for this food, and this particularly, you know, came to a head around slugs, because as anyone who gardens anywhere that there's water knows, um, the slugs will eat your garden overnight, and there's just nothing left Mm -hmm. in the morning. So I kept replanting, and then I kept re-eating, and we we went through that cycle five or six times, and at the end of two weeks, I was very tired of replanting the same heads of lettuce, and, you know, I had to kill them. It was me or the slugs, and it was really horrible, because I couldn't make myself do it. Um, so, you know, the end of that little story was I ended up getting chickens and ducks because I figured, well, they'll do it for me, which they did. Mm. And it was really Mm -hmm. great. Then I had manure. Now I closed the circle. I didn't have to buy fossil fuel fertilizer. I didn't have to buy stuff at the feed store. You know, they had the manure right there, but it meant that my food was ultimately dependent on those animals to kill other animals. I mean, it was like, there was no way out of this right?
0: I mean, Mm -hmm. I had
3: to face that I needed the animals and some of them were going to have to die. And it was really just so, it was just grueling for me to have to go through that. But I didn't know better. And this is the thing. This is not to blame me. It's not to blame any of us. We don't know. We don't live in a world where we're given the truth from a young age. You know, Mm -hmm. this is the cost of being alive. Something else is going to die. And you need Mm -hmm. to respect all the lives that are going to go into yours and do this well and participate and give thanksgiving and be humble about it because your turn's going to come too. And you'll be Mm -hmm. feeding the cycle at some point. And if we had a culture that recognized that, well, we wouldn't be destroying the planet, which is what we're doing. Um, So this is what I'm trying to get across to people is, you know, you can only get so far ideologically out of this before reality is going to smack you in the face.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, there's a lesson right there for vegetarians. I mean, When you say that you got chickens and ducks and you allow them to eat the slugs and other insects in your garden, that's part of the cycle, right? So why are humans not part of that cycle where pretty much everything seems to be feeding on everything else to survive on other life forms?
5: And you said something really important on on your book about it. When you say, well, people basically have choices, the death that's destroying life, which is what most people do, or the death that is part of life. And, yeah, it's part of accepting that you have to, you're dependent on the whole system and you should respect it at each level, right?
3: Yes. And for me, you know, when I was, back when I was in that vegan mindset, I thought that that was domination. Um, that was all I saw when I looked out and I didn't, I didn't want to be part of a dominating hierarchy. So, you know, my attempt was to remove myself from it. And say well i'm not one of the dominators i'm going to be somebody who respects life by not taking life but it turned out that that was not possible you know that every breath i took was dependent on the death of some creature somewhere every time you put your teeth together you're killing billions of bacteria
0: and those are bacteria that that
3: like you you know those are bacteria Mm -hmm. that are trying to help you they live in your body they help you digest your food you can't help it it's just it's part of what it is you know we we have to kill some things in order to live, but it was just a terrible realization for me. It, it took me years to wrap my mind around it and to accept it emotionally. It was, it's really hard, and I think that's one of the problems with the ideology that often comes with being vegetarian or vegan. You know, you, you start you start to um, create your identity around it, and then it just mm-hmm. becomes really hard to question it when it starts to fall apart. So I think uh, just so many people go through this kind of collapse of their worldview when for whatever reason, you know, the other information starts to invade. It, just, it starts to crack your system, and it's just a, te- it's a terrible process for many of us. It's very painful.
1: I, th- I think it's actually one of the most remarkable things about your book and, and, and you is that you came from that place where you didn't want to. You had a, a resistance or a, an abhorrence of um, killing something else. To come to the point not only of getting over that and you know accepting that you have to kill all things to to live as most other species on the planet do, but also then to write a book about it that's for me that's um, that's pretty unique because I don't see many other people not only i don't i also don't see people making that transition and not many people actually writing about it you know so congratulations well you know yeah you well
3: know. oh, thank you i I really wanted. I really want to reach the other people who feel the way that I feel, um, because there's a lot of people who are incredibly impassioned about what's happening to our planet. They feel the emergency of it, and they think they're doing the right thing by eating a vegetarian or a vegan diet. And I really wanted to explain to them that the original wound to this planet, the most destructive activity that we've done, is agriculture. So suggesting those foods as a way to save the planet is, is completely in the wrong direction. But I didn't know that as a vegan. In fact, I couldn't let myself know it. So I'm mm-hmm. trying to reach. It really has to be someone who's been in that world, you know, to be able to address other people who are still there. I think it's. it's, so it's I think it's easier for me.
1: Yeah. Was there something about, about your upbringing that that instilled this idea uh, within you? Because it's not. It's not. I wouldn't say it's common. I mean, it may be common enough, but I, would, I don't think the majority of people actually think that way about. Um, from a relatively early age, think that way about uh, about eating meat, for
0: example.
3: Well, I was born in 1964, so my whole childhood, you know, was took place amongst that whole, you know, uprising and cultural change, the civil rights movement mm-hmm. and the anti-war movement, and that was all going around me. It had a huge impression on me as a young kid. I mean, I, I was only four when Martin Luther King was shot, but I remember that day. And I remember Mm. Kent State, when the the protesters were shot. I mean, these were huge moments, you know, very impressionable age. And my parents were fairly engaged in all of that. I mean, they're not super radical, but they cared a lot, and they taught me to care about the world. They they taught me that I really had to be engaged. So Mm. I sort of took the ball and ran with it in different radical directions, but I got a really good foundation from my parents. Um, And that's (laughs) something that I'm forever grateful for. You know, and they also turned the television off and read books to us, which Mm -hmm. I don't know if anybody does it anymore, but it was like, this was before computers obviously, but it was like, no, it's way more important to play outside, it's way more important to talk to each other, and it's really important to read and to care about books. So Mm. all of that was part of my childhood, and that's a great foundation. You know, you can take Mm -hmm. that anywhere.
4: Mm -hmm. Yeah, you were mentioning the agriculture and its destructive nature. And I think while deconstructing the vegetarian myth you made a even more important discovery i e the true nature of agriculture cause vegetarian or not most consumers are participating to a system that literally, literally destroy our planet so can you explain more about how modern days agriculture destroy the planet? the planet
3: Yes so you have to understand what agriculture is um, in very brute terms. You take a piece of land and you clear every living thing off it. And I mean down to the bacteria. Everything has to go. And then on that cleared land, you plant food for humans and humans only. So we got a couple problems here. The first is that it's biotic cleansing. I mean, we talk about ethnic cleansing where you kill people and take their land. Well, this is biotic cleansing because you're killing entire biotic communities. You're just clearing them off. You're driving them away. And that's a long-winded way of saying mass extinction. We are now losing 200 species a day. Every day, 200 species are gone forever. And those are our kin. You know, those are our brothers and sisters. Um, We need them. And we need to to mourn their loss so that we will do something to stop this bleed. Um, But that's what agriculture is. So, you know, one problem is, you're extirpating all those other creatures, and they've got nowhere to go. If you take their homes away, where, where can they go? So that's it. It's over. So that's problem number one. Problem number two is that it lets the human population grow to these really large numbers because in sh- instead of sharing that land with, you know, millions of other creatures, uh, you're only growing humans on that piece of land. So, you know, to put a number on this, For a hunter-gatherer in the kind of climate that I live in, just your basic temperate forest, it takes about a square mile to provide for their basic needs. Um, For an agriculturalist in this same climate, it only takes about an acre, right? That's because you're not sharing that land. It's because you're only Mm -hmm. growing a human. So you can grow a lot Mm -hmm. more humans, right? But nobody else can live there. (laughs) That's the
0: problem. Mm -hmm.
3: And where I live in Northern California... A hundred years ago, you could sit by any stream or river in Northern California. Every 15 minutes, you would see a grizzly bear. Now, grizzly bears are apex predators, which means they're at the top of that trophic pyramid. It takes a lot of food and a lot of land to feed something as big as a grizzly bear. But every 15 minutes, you would see a grizzly bear. That's how much abundance there was here. That's how much life. There are no longer any grizzly bears in California. They're all gone. And you could take mm-hmm. your species and tell the same incredibly sad story, and that's what agriculture has done. They've got nowhere to go; they cannot coexist with agriculture. So there's that problem, uh, the overpopulation problem. And so right now, 80% of the food calories that support our current population, they come from agriculture. Okay. So what that means is that the human race—I mean, set aside the last 46 remaining tribes of hunter-gatherers—they're still doing something sustainable, but the rest of us, we've made ourselves dependent on this activity that is literally killing the planet. That is a scary thought. Um, and so the, and the final problem is that in the process of doing all of this, this thing called agriculture, what the, the main thing that you're also destroying is the soil itself because you have to expose it year after year in order to plant those seeds. And every time you expose the soil, you destroy it. You're killing it it's alive like you and me and when it's exposed to air, you know, to wind, to the um the sun, to the rain, to all that stuff, it just dries up and blows away. So, you know, you have these massive mm-hmm. dust storms now. Um, and that's why when you clear away the the cover, either the grasses or the trees and you expose it, it just turns to dust and sand. And that's why if you go around the globe, all the places where agriculture first started, um, they're just so degraded you you can't even believe there was ever a forest there I mean, Iraq, mm. Iran, you know the whole Middle East um all around the Mediterranean. I mean we think of that area as i mean now if you picture say Italy or something you you had this sort of picture of sort of scrubby rock in the sun with goats browsing on it. That was a forest, in fact, it was a forest so dense that sunlight never touched the ground, and mm. it was all destroyed, you know to build you know, pick your navy, whether it was the Phoenicians, the Egyptians, the Greeks, finally the Romans. I mean, that entire area was just clear cut for one militaristic endeavor after another. But that is the inevitable endpoint of agriculture. The societies always end up militarized. They always end up based on slavery. And that's just a logical progression when when your society is based on an extracting activity, which is what agriculture is. So you're extirpating all these species. You've got this ballooning population of humans that are dependent on the continued destruction of the planet and you're destroying the topsoil which is the basis of life so these are three really big problems with agriculture and none of them can be fixed i mean this is not agriculture on a bad day it's what the activity is that is what it means so a lot of people will try to make a distinction between like industrial agriculture but that's not the real problem that's you know, agriculture on steroids, yes, they've added fossil fuel, they've made it worse, but the problem itself is agriculture it's taking over whole living communities, destroying them, and then just using it for humans until the whole thing gives out
0: mm-hmm.
1: so that's I mean that's largely from an ideological perspective, but is it not sustainable? Just just playing devil's advocate here for a moment. Is it not sustainable, for example, with fossil fuels? that produce the uh, fertilizer to continue to use, uh, even though it's kind of it's false in a way, it's not real fertilizer, but let's just say uh, we continue to have uh, oil-based, basically, fertilizer. Is it not possible to continue and have it uh, be sustainable in terms of uh, continuing to grow crops that way?
3: Okay. Right. Well, so two problems. One is that the fossil fuel will eventually run out. Now, We can live in fairyland and say that somehow we will find more. And yes, scientists are very good at continuing to find ways to get the stuff out of the ground. There are now wells in places like Pennsylvania that catch on fire (laughs) because of the fracking. Um, If you Mm -hmm. want to turn on your faucet and get something that catches on fire, we can keep trying to get the oil and the gas out of the ground. Um, You know, oil spills, I mean, all the rest of it, it's... just an incredibly destructive activity, but we can put that aside. Pretend that there will be an ever-flowing amount and it will never end. We will always find more. All right, fine. Mm -hmm. Let's say that's true. It's insane, but we'll pretend that's true. There are real problems with using fossil fuel um, as a fertilizer. One is that it mostly just includes nitrogen. And the problem with soil and ultimately plant life is that it needs a lot more than than just nitrogen. That's only one thing. That, that's only mm-hmm. one nutrient that plants need. That's a big one, clearly. Um, but you also need, um, you know, potassium, you need calcium, you need, you know, just a whole range of different minerals that are all limiting factors. So when that when those minerals run out, plant growth simply stops. Um, and so this is a real problem for not just gardeners, but really, you know, the big farmers, because they're always needing to find more sources of these things, and they're running out around the globe. There's only so much you can mine <clears throat> Um, to get these minerals back into the soil. And so you need to understand the difference between annuals and perennials. So agriculture is based on annual grasses. And the thing about annuals is that they only grow, they're called annuals because they only live for a year. Well, they don't even really live Mm -hmm. a year. It's really just three seasons. And in that time, they have one goal, and that goal is to make a great big seed. Okay, that's the whole future of their species depends on that seed. So all of their resources, all of their biological resources go into making that seed as big and sturdy and tough and, you know, packed with whatever, whatever it's going to need. They try to give everything to that seed because, you know, like it all depends on that seed getting a good start in life. So annuals don't tend to be very tall, and they do not tend to be deep-rooted. They don't have time, right? Everything, they've got this they're, – they're on the clock. The moment that they're born, it's like, got to get that seed made, and then they die. So because they don't have a deep-root system – they can't do what perennials do. So if you compare the roots of a perennial grass to an annual grass, you know, the annuals only go down a few feet. The perennials go down and down and down. And whether it's grasses or trees, they have roots that are so incredibly strong and deep, they actually burrow into the rock that our planet is made of. And here's the point. They eat that rock. They break it down. They pull up the minerals from that rock. And then they make it available to the rest of of life on Earth. And that is why there is minerals in the soil. And that is why the rest of us are alive. Is because those perennial plants, be it grasses or trees, can eat rocks. Okay? Mm-hmm. And they can make those minerals biologically available. If all you're adding back to that soil is nitrogen, you're missing all the rest of them. So eventually mm-hmm. the soil's going to die. It's not going to be, you know, the plants aren't going to be able to survive. They're going to be stunted. You know, it the whole thing eventually ends in collapse. If all you're applying is nitrogen, because life needs a lot more than just nitrogen. You can limp it along for a few generations, and they have, but ultimately it's going to die. Um, And then, you know, you have still that basic problem of every time you expose the soil, which you have to do to plant annual crops, um, you're killing it. So it, it just powders, you know, it just turns into dust. Right now the dust storms in China are so bad that these dust clouds reach all the way across the Pacific Ocean. And then they hit the Rocky Mountains in the United States, so they come down. All that dust falls down in places like Denver, Colorado, which is up in the Rockies, literally creating asthma in children in Denver. Mm -hmm. And this is from dust storms in China. And that is the inevitable endpoint of agriculture. Um, You can look Mm -hmm. at photographs from the first day of the Dust Bowl in South Dakota, and it's just this massive cloud of dust. I mean, it was so dark, people fell down outside. Like, they couldn't see where they were going. And that's all of the the topsoil that just blew right off. And that's what happens when you remove the grasses. There's literally nothing to hold the soil in place. And the moment that there's Mm -hmm. wind, it's over. So there there were farms in South Dakota that lost all of their soil. I mean, think of it, all of their soil in one day, the first day of the Dust Bowl. And the the soil rolled in across the continent all the way to Washington, D.C., and then all the way into the Atlantic Ocean. There were ships in the Atlantic that couldn't navigate because the dust storms were so bad. And that was all the soil from the prairie that just blew out to sea. And that is what agriculture does. You can apply as much fossil fuel as you want. It doesn't change the basic nature of this activity.
2: Mm -hmm. And in the end, it it comes back to, to bite us. I think it was in the book, The Magnesium Miracle. I can't remember the author's name. She cited a study from 1913 that analyzed the the mineral content in soil in the U.S. And they found then that magnesium was way off, that as a result, children in the U.S. were not getting sufficient magnesium in their diet to either meat or or plants Mm -hmm. because the topsoil was so severely depleted Mm -hmm. at that point.
1: So mass agriculture basically is... Producing malnourished and weakened human beings uh, you know that are feeding on it, and this is coming at a time, and it 's getting worse and worse it's getting it 's cumulative in the sense that it, as the topsoil continues to degrade and degrade you get lower and lower quality of actual of crops let's say if people are eating mainly cereals and uh and this is coming at a time now i don 't know if you 've been noticing the air, but um there 's a lot of crazy stuff going on around the planet in terms of um climate change or earth changes, you know, uh, that isn't helping the situation at all.
3: No, I totally agree. Um, a lot the the of people talk and... about, yeah, no, and it's and a lot of it is just due to this, this agriculture. Another thing about having those deep-rooted plants is that that's what lets the water table recharge because the mm-hmm. roots are really deep. And every time mm-hmm. it rains, um, that makes a little channel. Every root is a little tiny channel that pulls water mm-hmm. down. And so that's how the water literally gets down into the water table. And then it recharges that table. And then during drier times, of course, again, the deeply rooted perennials can pull that water up as it's needed and make it available in whatever form to the rest of the community. So without Mm -hmm. those perennial plants, the water is never stored. It just runs off the top of the soil. And then, of course, there's no... Yeah, you get floods, terrible floods, and you get... And not just floods of water, but floods with all that dirt, all that silt,
0: mm-hmm. you know, that
3: just completely destroys rivers and the, the life of those rivers. Um, and then it all piles up at the mouth of rivers. And you can look at this, you know, through history, archaeologically. There were ports in Rome uh, along the, the, the coast of the Mediterranean that were, you know, the big Roman ports. They had to be moved two and three times because so much soil had washed on off the mountains. The ports were just completely clogged and the boats couldn't get any more. The ships couldn't dock. So they kept having to move the ports. Um, to match where the topsoil was building up. Um, mm-hmm. So anyway, yes, all of that is to say, I, I completely agree. that. Um, and so they call it mining the <coughs> soil, because every time you plant the annuals, of course they're sucking minerals out, but they've got no way to replace it, because animal plants simply can't do that.
4: And if I correctly understand, there is a paradox, because somehow hunter-gatherers waiting mostly animals were preserving, or they were not destroying, their biotope so wilderness could bloom around. At the same time, modern vegetarians that are heavily relying on farming and products coming from farming, intensive farming, contribute, directly or indirectly, to the destruction of those wildlife biotopes and to destruction of wildlife. So the hunter-gatherer who consumes meats doesn't threaten the continuation of wildlife, of animal's life, while the vegetarian who doesn't eat any meat contributes to the destruction of wildlife and animals. So it's, uh, everything is uh, reversed.
3: Yeah, that was really hard for me to come to terms with as a vegetarian. But what you're saying is exactly true. So there's two ways to look at, like in ancient Greek, there's two words for life and one of them means a specific life and the other one means sort of the life of the whole, the life of the species mm-hmm. and this again is really the only choices we have you know, we can kill one individual but the species goes on or we can kill the entire species and pretend we're not doing it but that's what agriculture is because you're taking over their homes, mm-hmm. right? You're making it impossible for them to live there
5: but yeah, I wanted to ask you. I mean, there it seems that there's a. It's really hard to convey this to people, and we've had like crazy, wild reactions from just sharing your book. And I mean, the, we we published your book in French, you know, and the very yeah. first like he had, I think he had been online or public, available for like four days. Nobody had read it yet, and there was a massive campaign, you know, just to say, well, this is stupid, this is whatever, you know, and I, I'm sure you have. Uh, a club there of haters or, you know, people who just don't even want to hear the evidence. And I'm wondering if, you know, because of all you said about the uh, diet and the nutritional aspect as well and the, the effect that grains can have on the brain, you know, how how do we get out of this vicious circle? Because people are being malnourished and are having this sort of cognitive, you know, Blockage there where they can't think they can't question what they've been told for years and years and years So they go on the attack or on the on just plain denial How do you go about you know trying to you know put the truth out there and at the same time, you know? Understanding that maybe what's causing this blockage is an effect of what they're eating actually
0: It's a very
3: hard Thing to have to tell people because well they don't want to hear it, but a lot of times their behavior is the best evidence. I mean they're proving my point better than I ever could. Yes. But I've been there and I know how my brain felt when I did not have enough good quality animal fat. In fact, I had no animal fat for almost 20 years, um, and it was it's just horrible. You cannot keep a stable mood.
0: Mm-hmm. You know
3: I would lose my I couldn't like if I couldn't find my wallet or my keys or something, I would sit on the floor and cry. Like, I just couldn't. There was no way. Just the tiny little things in life that go wrong, there was no resilience at all in my brain. Mm. And the moment I started eating eggs, it got better. Like, within two days, I was a different person. And that wasn't even like, you know, fabulous amounts of animal fat or bacon or anything really good. It was just eggs. But eating eggs for a few days in a row, I couldn't believe how much better I felt. Um, and this is true, you know, just statistically speaking, people on low-fat diets have, like, a tremendously higher suicide rate. I think they're four times as likely to commit suicide. Also, they're way more likely to die a violent death. So they they have a higher murder rate. So they are murdered more than people who eat, like, regular diets. Um, hmm. And all of this I have seen is it, really the suicide rate is horrible, Um and I know why, you know, it's you don't have enough tryptophan, so you can't make serotonin. We all know serotonin is, you know, the happy thing you need when you have to mm-hmm. take Prozac. But you could just eat food and in fact a lot of depression goes away from simply eating an appropriate diet for a few days. I've seen this over and over. I've experienced it myself. Um, it's kind of an amazing thing. And actually the best book on this is Julia Ross's book. It's called The Mood Cure and this is her life's work. She is a um That's her field. She works with addiction and depression, and she treats it nutritionally and has just a stupendous success rate. So if these are issues that any of your listeners are are dealing with, depression or addiction or anxiety, that is a Mm. fabulous book. It's called The Moodful Cure, and this is what she goes into, the, the biochemistry of the brain and how if you don't have enough protein and good quality animal fat, you are so at risk for things like depression and addiction. Um, addiction, in particular, because it's your brain is trying to, to normalize. It's trying to stabilize, and if you're fighting your brain, you're not going to win. I mean, your brain is going to crave until it gets what it needs. So this is not an emotional failing. It's not a you know a political failing or an ethical failing. It's simply biologically true. You need certain things, but it's it's really hard. A lot of the people who email me. Um, it's. I think one of the conditions that I hear over and over is the depression and anxiety. And mm. they go ahead and they try it because they're so desperate. So they will eat a more appropriate human diet for a few days, and then they write to me and they say, you you saved my life. You know, I was so depressed mm-hmm. I couldn't get out of bed. I can't believe how much better I feel. And I've gotten those emails over and over, and it absolutely makes up for the hate mail because just
0: mm-hmm. know yeah. that
3: you know, I'd I saved somebody from, and I ha I mean, I lost 20 years of my life to depression. I know how bad it gets. I mean, I mm-hmm. have nothing but compassion for these people, but they need to broaden out a tiny bit if they want relief, because eating what they're eating, they're never going to feel okay.
1: It, occur, it occurs to me that, um, I know we, we're talking about vegetarians here, and we're laying a lot of the blame on, on vegetarians, but it seems to me that There'd be an awful lot more people who are not vegetarians, who would have a serious problem with the idea of getting rid of, uh, you know, industrial agriculture, i.e., and the reduction in, um, in in availability of cereals and grains that 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 would involve. Because a lot of people, I think most people, especially in the Western world, who who eat meat, it's only a small part of their diet compared to cereals and grains, and they're kind of addicted to them because basically cereals and grains break down into sugars uh, in your body, and, and sugars are not only addictive but very harmful to, uh, to, to, to human beings, to human health. Uh, they're, they're the source of a lot of um, modern illnesses that didn't exist uh, you know, 100 years ago.
5: Not to mention gluten and casein in yeah. dairy products and in, in some cereals that create an actual addiction, like you're saying there.
1: So what what do you think about that, Pierre, in terms of, I mean, the bi- the problem is also non-vegetarians, meat eaters, and their addiction to cereals. I mean, most of us have been, have been addicted to, you know, cereals and all sorts of cereal, as in breakfast cereal, but also pastas and breads and everything. I mean, it's, people will fight for that. They,
3: they are incredibly addictive substances, at least for some of us. And I I say this as someone who knows. <laughs> the um, yeah. Like gluten, for instance, when it's being digested, you know, it goes through your digestive tract. For some of us anyway, it actually turns into gluteomorphine, which is exactly what it sounds like. It's a form of morphine mm. that's made from gluten. And it's really addictive. Mm-hmm. Um, I have been gl- completely gluten-free for a few years now. I actually had a diagnosis of an autoimmune disease, and I was like, well, that's it. I cannot ever eat gluten again, even for a treat now and then. I took it out of mm-hmm. my diet completely. And I gotta say, as an aside, it made a huge difference. So even the little bit of gluten that I was eating was still triggering the autoimmune mm-hmm. response. But that's an aside. The it does, it turns into morphine for some of us. And okay, obviously that's addictive. Um and there are actually some people who have suggested that this is the reason we took up agriculture. Um None of the other explanations actually make sense uh, What I was taught in school When I was you know, in elementary school was Well the human population got too big And there wasn't enough food to go around So people had to intensify Their use of their land base And that meant learning to do agriculture And that was a great thing Because now look how many people there are And that was pretty much the story we got told you know, When I was 10 Well the problem is the archaeological evidence Doesn't match that story You don't see signs of chronic hunger and deficiency diseases, so the human population did not push this activity to happen. We actually don 't know why people started doing agriculture it doesn 't make any sense um, it 's mm-hmm. backbreaking labor for pretty poor nutrition. So why would anybody do this and you know the one explanation is well, we did it because it was addictive because people liked how they felt when they ate those annual seeds, and here we are. And that, to me, is the only explanation that makes any sense, mostly because I've experienced it myself. I know the call of wheat. (laughs) You know, it calls for me from across town. Come, eat a muffin, eat a piece of bread. Um, And everybody in my family is the same way. I mean, we all Mm. feel that pull. you know. Um, And I, I actually feel really lucky that I was diagnosed finally with an autoimmune disease because that was the thing that broke it for me. It's like, well, you can die from this or you can just stop eating it. So I stopped eating it and... Now it's not food anymore it's like forget it, i I don't need to go there um and it's really great because you know I would have one bite and it would be over for the day, like all I could think about was getting more. So I know that addictive feeling, and so I think you're right i mean it's it's everybody it's I don't want to mm. single out you know, you know the mm-hmm. vegetarians or anybody. The entire society around the globe, everybody now at this point mm-hmm. is you know pretty well addicted to this stuff, and it's what keeps the food system going is
0: going, growing yeah. these
3: grains we, you know, at this point, like I said, eighty percent of the food calories that support our current population couldn't be gotten any other way. So we've kind of mm-hmm. backed ourselves up against up against a wall here. And there are ways out, which we can talk about, but people mm-hmm. get scared, you know, when you start looking at the numbers because
0: mm-hmm. it looks
3: like there's no way to feed us all without continuing to do this. And since it's destroying the planet, you're sort of left falling off the cliff. Like, well what can we do? Just stand here and wait for the collapse. Mm-hmm. And I don't actually think so. I think there's a lot of very proactive things we can do that can turn this around. But it is a very scary moment for people, both emotionally and intellectually, because A, we're addicted and we want these substances, but also B, you know, on a larger scale, wow, what's what's the future going to hold? It looks really scary.
1: Yeah, we've got a call here, so we're going to go ahead and take it and cross our fingers. Okay. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Oops. Hi hi. hi, hi, hello, caller, hello,
4: caller, speaker's down, Teacher, speaker's down, hello, hello, all right, I'm hi. hanging up, the caller should call back, I'm <laughs> hanging up on that one, uh, That's, I had more trouble than it was worth. that uh, this last part of the discussion reminded me of a a chapter in your book, well, you quote an author, I think, who hypothesized that actually, we did not domesticate animals and grains, but actually grains domestici- domesticated us, and through addiction, they managed to transform us into slaves. We take care of them, we plant their seeds everywhere around the world, we water them, we feed them, and we have their fundamental goal, i.e. survival and spreading of the species.
3: Yeah, that's an idea that I got from Michael Polan's book, um, which, I mean, I, it was a different way to look at it for me. Um, and I think that it's actually true um, in, in that regard. You can look at it like, well, we did this incredible thing to plants and animals. But if you look across nature, I mean, everything is a symbiotic relationship. Every species changes other species. And ultimately, you know, they work together. They're interdependent. And I I think of some species like the acacia ant and the acacia ant tree. And without their ants, the trees die because the ants perform all these incredible functions for them. And likewise, the trees give the ants food and shelter. So without, one without the other, they both are dead. But with each other, you know, they've changed their genomes more and more so that they're completely dependent on each other. And I think that's basically what we've done with this very, very small cohort of plants and animals And it is very small. I mean, the vast majority of plants want nothing to do with this. And most animals in the world are perfectly content without, you know, signing up to this project with humans. But the few that have done it have been wildly successful. And the example, of course, is wolves versus domestic dogs, where in the United States, anyway, there are fewer than 4,000 wolves. But there are 50 million dogs in this country. Mm -hmm. So the dogs that went ahead and said, sure, let's hitch our fortunes together, Yeah, it worked. I mean, half of them get Mm -hmm. Christmas presents. I mean, they live better Mm -hmm. lives than plenty of people in third world countries. And I speak here of my dog Mm -hmm. who was completely spoiled and, you know, sleeps on Mm -hmm. my bed and has a couch to herself and God knows what all. But it worked, you know. And you can look look at it the same way from the perspective of wheat or corn. You know, what did they do? Well, they offered us this little happy hit in our brains. And in exchange, we ripped up the prairies. We pulled down most of the forests and we turned it over to wheat and corn. So, you know, from a species perspective, like, they got what they wanted, and they've conquered the world.
1: Yeah, I just wanted to to, um, talk a little bit about the ideology behind vegetarianism and see if we can't uh, deconstruct some of the most common arguments that are used. I mean, you mentioned earlier on that, you know, you noticed that, you know, Everything eats everything else in this life, you know, right from the bacteria up to, you know, lions and tigers and bears. And then humans are just an extension of that. So, I mean, vegetarians have to admit that, like, as you saw, your chickens and ducks ate the slugs and the other insects. And then in the wild, something would be eating those chicken and du- chickens and ducks and then on up. So, I mean, are, are there vegetarians who accept that as a natural cycle um, and that humans are involved in that? And is there a problem really only that the way animals are treated by humans? I mean, if we could get rid of factory farming and the abuses and cruelty that are involved there, would all vegetarians turn around and say, okay, as long as we can do it naturally, then we're all we're cool with that?
3: You know, I think there's a wide range of, diff- of viewpoints on this. So it's mm. I don't know that I can speak for everyone who is in that world. Um, mm. So what I would say is, there's definitely people who, you know, the real issue is that that animals are are tortured in factory farms. And Mm -hmm. I think that's something we can all agree to. It's just horrendous on every level, and it needs to stop. And that should be something that we can all work together on, right? I I don't know anybody Mm -hmm. who can defend these practices. I've just Mm -hmm. never met a single soul who thought it was okay once they understood what was going on. These are sentient beings, and they're just subjected to horrible things. And, you know, this Mm -hmm. doesn't need to happen. So on that level, one would hope we could all get together and work. But, you know, if you go to the different websites and read the journals and, and everything, especially more the vegans, I think, than the vegetarians, and they they really hate the idea of, quote, happy meat. I mean, they've, for them, and this would have been me, you know, at the time, any any human use of animals was wrong, that that, that was always hmm. going to be domination. So, um, you know, I used to have a button, animals are not ours, to use, wear, or experiment on. And that. I'm still against mm. animal experimentation. Um, mm. I do have a leather jacket, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, so I changed my mind on that. Um, it was actually kind of a funny moment because I'd been eating meat for a few years, and it suddenly occurred to me, oh, my God, if I'm eating them, I might as well wear them. So yeah. I let myself lust after a leather jacket finally, and I got one. So, all right, that's yeah. my big admission. I have a leather coat. I love my leather coat. Anyway, um <laughs> Evil me, I know, it's terrible. But it was like, look, really, what's going to happen to the skin? I mean, we should be using every part of the animal. I mean, we should. We should be making soap out of some of it, you know? Like, we should be using the hide. We should be using the feathers should be pillows. I mean, there's a use to be put. You know, we can make musical instruments out of the sinews. Like, all the things people have done with every part of the animal. And I don't know, whatever. So that's an aside. Um, So, but yes, and so I think that there's this range um, there's definitely people who would say, you know, if we can get rid of factory farming, I don't have a problem with the rest of it. And I think mm. those are people who are a little more realistic about the nature of life. They personally don't want to participate and they feel like, well, if I eat these foods instead of those, there's no doubt. And that's the point where I think they're fooling themselves. But, you know, it makes them happy. I don't really care. You know, like, you just do what you're going to mm. do. There's only so many times you can have this discussion with people as individuals. Um, so and then you've got the more, the more militant people, and again, this would have been me, who just say any way that humans ever use animals is wrong, that we don't have a right that's seen as a question of rights. And to me, it's not a question of rights, it's a question of reality, that there's no mm-hmm. way out of it. There's nothing you can eat that does not ultimately depend on dead plants and animals.
1: And Mm -hmm. you might as
3: well accept that so you can do it well. And that was the realization that I had to come to.
1: I suppose those kind of people would uh, uh, ascribe a, a value to different types of life on the planet. Yeah, I mean, plants, microorganisms, even small insects and stuff aren't so... Aren't sentient. Aren't as sentient or aren't as important or don't have as much value as a cow or a pig or... Uh, I'm pretty sure that's the way they see things because what other way is it for them to, to rationalize it in their minds if they're eating vegetables and involves killing animals, then they must ascribe a value a judgment to uh, to bigger animals.
5: And the broccoli doesn't cry or shout or, yeah. you know, all that kind of stuff.
3: Well, that was certainly what I believed. And it's kind of an argument that you'll see over and over is that There are some animals that have nerves that are like human nerves. Mm. Therefore, we know that they experience pain, and because they can suffer, that's the dividing line. The problem with this argument is that, as far as I can tell, from the research that I've done and just from experiencing the world, um, every single living thing loves its life. And I I used Mm. to draw that line, too, but I don't anymore because you're making a hierarchy you're saying the creatures that are like me in this very specific way they're the ones that count and mm-hmm. to me now i think why do they have to be like me for them to count every living creature loves its life and deserves respect there's there's like i don't want to live in that hierarchy anymore and i thought that by doing that i was the person who was overthrowing those hierarchies but i just made mm-hmm. a new one and it was still mm-hmm. based around human beings and what we think is important Um, and as it turns out of course bacteria communicate all the time i mean they send each other incredible Mm -hmm. amounts of information that's why we have a problem with these quote superbugs is because every antibiotic we make they outwit us and they're able to communicate every single bacteria can communicate with every other bacteria they're really just one species bacteria they're fascinating Mm -hmm. creatures but they can talk to each other and you know almost overnight they can spread around the globe okay, this is the new antibacteria, you know, anti-antibiotic that the humans have come up with, and this is how you fight it. And so you have resistance almost right away. And that's why now it's only been, what, two generations of antibiotics, and we're running out, you know, because they're smarter than we are. They're outwitting us, and they're communicating about it. So that's bacteria. And then you get to plants, and plants do incredible things. The more you find out about plants, they communicate, they help each other, um, if one plant in the community is being attacked by insects, the other plants will send um, insecticides through their roots and try to help that other plant fend off whatever the attacker is. They'll tell each other. Um, like if, if there's a, a deer or a bear in the woods and they brush up against some plant, that plant will tell all the others in the neighborhood, hey, there's a big creature walking by, stiffen mm-hmm. up a little bit. You're going to need some help. And so then all the other plants will you know, do whatever it is they do to get a little stiffer so they can... Um, you know, in case they get bumped up against by a great big bear. Where I live in the redwood forest, there are actually albino redwoods and they can't Mm. make chlorophyll. Yeah, so they're not green. They're actually kind of a pale white color. Um, The only reason they're alive, I mean, they can't photosynthesize, right? The only Mm. reason they're alive is because the other redwoods feed them. So they never Mm. will reach, you know, the huge height of the real redwoods. They're stunted. But they're alive and they can live a good long time. But it's because the other plants in in their community send them nutrients that's the only way they're alive and plants do these kinds of things all the time with each other Um, they fight each other for space yeah they help each other when they want to they create incredibly diverse communities as well they call plants that are needed to come and nobody Mm -hmm. knows how they do it but they do it Um, so there are seeds that arrive and it's not random but like how do the seeds know to land there and They don't have propellers. They don't have arms and legs. How do they fall exactly where they're needed? The best Mm -hmm. book on this is called The Lost Language of Plants, and it's by Mm -hmm. Stephen Brunner. And he, oh, this book, it will blow your mind, the things that plants do. But by the time you're done, you can't say, oh, plants aren't really alive. They're not really sentient. They don't really feel things. They are as alive as me or you. The only thing they can't Mm -hmm. do is get up and run. But Mm -hmm. on every other level, oh, yeah, and they're, you know, again, they are the people who are helping keep this planet alive. You know, without them, they are the ones that can turn sunlight into matter. That's an incredible miracle. Without mm-hmm. them, it's over. You know, we wouldn't be here. So um, plants are fabulous. And this is why so many indigenous cultures have this concept of trees or other kinds of plants as our elders. You know, they'll call them you know, our grandparents, our grandmothers, our grandfathers. Um, and if you need help, you can go talk to them. And people Mm -hmm. around the world believe this, and they believe it because they experience it. You can talk to the trees and ask them for help. And if you are humble and you really are in need, the idea is they will speak to you. And Mm -hmm. I think for most of human history, we have that ability. That's an amazing thing. It sounds kind of out there, I guess, for some people, but, I mean, it's just story Mm -hmm. after story about how the plants have helped us. And when you talk to the curanderos and... Well, whoever the traditional healers are around the world, so how do you know this is the plant for this disease or this condition? And over and over they say the same thing. Well, the plants tell us. The plants say this is what they're for. When you ask them, this is what they say. That is the universal answer around the globe. Like, that's amazing not, to me. Yeah.
5: Now that you're talking about plants also, um, could you describe a little bit how they defend themselves? You, you, You had a great explanation about lectins, and there's something that people don't often know about, um, you know, plants can't run away from you, but they do have a defense mechanism and they don't want to eat or we're not meet, meant to eat them and digest them. Can you explain how the process goes? And
3: Sure. Yeah, most seeds are not really edible. So this includes nuts, it includes grain. Those are, those are all seeds. So to make them edible, we have to do all kinds of things to them, like cook them. You can't eat raw wheat. I mean, you can try if you want. You're going to get really sick. So, I mean, if you need to experiment, go ahead, but it's kind of pointless. We already know what will happen. Um, So, cooking is the first thing we do to make plants edible. And the reason that we have to do that is because they defend their babies. You know, when they create a seed, it comes coated with all kinds of protective things that make them inedible, that will make us sick if we eat them. The point Mm -hmm. is that You know, just like a mother bear protects her children, the mother plant, the father plant, you know, they're they're protecting their babies too, and they do it by coating the plants, the the seeds, with all kinds of substances that will either irritate or out and out kill you. Um, And so one of these substances is lectins. Um, You've got all kinds of antinutrients, and antinutrients is a word that means when you try to eat it, you know, as it moves through your digestive tract... They will, those anti-nutrients will bind to minerals. So it's worse than eating nothing. You know, it sucks, mm. sucks nutrition out of your body on the way out. And this is the plant's way of saying, well, you can eat my babies, but you're going to suffer for it. In fact, you may not be able to reproduce yourself if you keep eating these plant babies. You better leave us alone. Um, and mm. soy, of course, is a great example. Soy comes with all kinds of anti-nutrients, but a big problem with soy is the phytoestrogens. So these are substances that mimic human estrogen. So it looks a lot like the estrogens that we have in our bodies, but they're a little bit different. And so they're similar enough that your body thinks it's estrogen, and the phytoestrogens will actually fill up the estrogen receptors on your cells. So you think you've got enough estrogen. You don't because it doesn't actually behave like human estrogen does, but it's close enough. So by mimicking human estrogen... The plant is able to plug your estrogen receptors. Now you don't actually have enough estrogen, which means you're not going to be able to reproduce. And this is why, you know, soy is linked to all of these terrible reproductive conditions, like, mm-hmm. um, you know, like breast cancer and uh, other kinds of cancer in the reproductive organs. Um, I mean, my, mm-hmm. well, my sister was also a vegan for a long time, and she ended up with terrible endometriosis from eating soy. And ended up having to have a hysterectomy. That is soy's way of fighting back. Yeah, you can eat me, mm-hmm. but that's the end of it. You know, your line ends here. You eat too much soy; it's over. Um,
0: mm-hmm.
3: So soy, I and, really, really caution people against soy very strongly.
2: Yeah. and soy, soy has been has been the staple of a vegetarian vegan diet for all this time. Mm-hmm. It's really tragic when you when you think about it. Um,
3: it's ghastly stuff. It's not edible, and some of the researchers will say point blank: these are not foods; these are drugs.
2: Mm. Well, this, this is something. This is the paradox, isn't it? The amount of work that goes into backbreaking labor, as you said earlier, to to grow, say, grains. Well, you've got to clear the land. You've got to grow it. It needs a lot of attention. Then it's not even edible yet. You you need to harvest it, process it, cook it. Now you're ready. <laughs> on, the even ha- then. on the one hand, it's a drug. Yeah, on. And even then,
1: you've still got lectins in a lot of it. Exactly.
2: So. On the one hand, it's, it's a drug, and you will, you're willing to go through all this to get it.
1: And on the other hand,
2: it's killing you. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's, this, it's, it's like an anti-cycle of life.
1: I wonder if vegetarians and vegans would actually, if they were given the choice, if they would prefer if the human race was made extinct and leave the, leave the planet to animals and plants. What do you think you are (laughs) as it came down down Um, to it, you know?
3: I'm sort of sympathetic to that. I see the terrible damage that we're doing. And if Mm -hmm. we disappeared tomorrow, I think the planet would still be okay. We're going to reach a tipping point past which it wouldn't. I would prefer other things. Um, I think that, you know, this is our home too. And if we would just stop destroying it, I think it would be
0: okay. Mm -hmm.
3: And I don't think this is our nature to do this. I think we've created a terrible a combination of social and political forces that are leading to this. And there are people in Mm -hmm. charge. You know, there there is a power structure. There are some people in charge and a lot of people who are dispossessed. So it's not human nature. You know, I I get, I just, I really, I don't believe that this is, you know, our genes making us do this or, you know, our our evolutionary history. Because for two and a half million years, we lived on this planet just fine. You know, we Mm -hmm. were participants. And you can look at the first art we ever made and you can see that. That we had awe and thanksgiving for the creatures that gave us life. In fact, we were so compelled by that awe and thanksgiving that we figured out how to do art, which is pretty amazing. You know, Mm -hmm. like that was, that we were so compelled to say thank you that we learned how to draw. You know, we had to express it somehow. And I, so that's where where I come from. I think that that is more in our bodies and in our, our brains is that awe and that, 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 just that drive to participate that, that's been, it's so hard to get to now, you know, because we're so alienated. But um, I, I can, so I can, I'm sympathetic to the urge, at least emotionally, to say, God, if we could just get rid of humans, it would all be okay. Because I think mm-hmm. pretty much every other species on the planet would probably heave a sigh of relief. You know, they're under assault. They're fighting a war, and they're losing.
2: The flight is
3: losing, you know.
2: <laughs> yeah. Apart from the dogs. Well, people behave, do behave like a virus. Um...
3: Right now, yes, we are behaving it's, it's, that way. Now, yeah.
2: the, the, the thing that and you mentioned, uh, it, it runs through to your book. I mean, it, you have this overview of history, let's say the last 10,000 years, since the dawn of agriculture, and people can look at that and go, well, that's a long time. I mean, it's, you know, your insights are great, but wow, we're, we're locked in this. You know, this is all we know agricultural civilization. But the, there is hope, surely, in the fact that um, the, the, the way we are, a very genetic blueprint, is actually far older. As you say, it's like developed over 2 million years of a completely different way of living. Um, well,
3: yeah. yeah. Lauren Cordain, who's an expert in paleolithic nutrition, he uses this image of a football field. So that's an American football field. I don't know how big... <laughs> a European soccer field is, but mm-hmm. anyway, great big field, right? Um, and so he uses, um, that's the entire history of humans on Earth. So it's two and a half million years. That's represented by that field. And it's the last half a yard that that's when mm-hmm. agriculture begins. So we were on, you know, this planet all that time. And it's only that very last half a yard where the destruction begins. And then the very last one fifth of an inch, that's the industrial age, So it's a really short period of time in terms of who we are, just biologically speaking, agriculture. It's a really new activity.
4: And um, in your book, you explain also that uh, we should be cautious with the illusion of going back to hunter-gatherer diet by solely eating modern meat, modern breeds, and uh, modern breeds of uh, vegetables and fruits, like hunter-gatherers did or might have done, Because you emphasize that between the current modern breeds, high on sugar, very lean for the meat, and uh, rustic, all the breeds, there is almost almost, uh, nothing in common.
3: Yeah, you know, a lot of people who take up sort of fruitarian diets, they think they can live on raw fruit. They can't. They're going to get really sick. I mean, it's pretty sad to watch, but um, they don't understand that. That doesn't exist in nature. These are, you know, highly, highly hybridized, um, you know, forms of food. And what we did, you know, by domesticating things like even apples or berries, we took out a whole bunch of the anti-nutrients, which were very bitter. Um, Mm -hmm. Wild apples are basically inedible. I mean, they're so bitter that you just kind of gag when you bite one. Um, Mm -hmm. So we took out all the anti-nutrients and made them sweeter and sweeter and sweeter. And so you're eating way more sugar than somebody would have had access to even ten thousand years ago, and I don't think they realize that what they're eating you know they want they they make all kinds of claims about well, this is the natural human diet, but that didn't exist. <laughs> That's only been around for a few thousand years um and you know it was a huge amount of human effort went into making that edible for you so I mean it just that kind of fairy tale just really falls apart um, yeah, did I answer your question?
4: Yeah, Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, I have uh, another question, trying to uh, understand better the vegetarian myth. I have to confess, for 11 years I was a vegetarian. Nobody's perfect, and um, during this uh, period of my life, one of my main arguments, and I believed in it, was that, uh, okay, to produce uh, one kilogram of veggie, you need, say, one acre, uh, and to produce one kilogram of meat, you need ten times the surface. So with all those people starving to death, vegetarism is the is way to go. It's a better use of the available soil. So is there any flaw in this reasoning?
3: Yeah, the, so this is why I called it the vegetarian myth and not the vegetarian lie, okay? There is a grain of truth in this. And the truth is that, yes, if you have factory farming, um, it, you need a tremendous amount of corn to feed those cows. And so the argument is, well, that corn should go to humans instead, which, you know, on the surface makes sense. It's a simple argument, and I believed it myself for many years. Um, This was the beginning of the whole sort of vegetarian ethic as it developed across popular culture, and it really came from Frances Moore LePay's book, Diet for a Small Planet. She was the one who really put forward that argument, and it's really gotten taken up. Um, And I, I understand why people... Believe it. I mean, it sort of makes sense on the surface. But you need to go down a couple more layers, and the whole thing basically falls apart. So the first problem is, why are we feeding corn to cows? I mean, it doesn't actually make any sense. It's not their native diet. It makes them really Mm -hmm. sick, in fact. They can Mm -hmm. only live on those feedlots for, you know, maybe two months. After that point, they literally 100% of them get sick because it's not the food they were meant to eat. For one problem is it's way too acid. Um, They're supposed to eat grass right? Mm -hmm. But when you feed them grain, it turns their, they have four stomachs. The rumen becomes way too acid. And literally, it'll, it eats holes in their stomachs. So then they get all this blood poisoning uh, Mm
0: -hmm. because
3: all this, you know, half-digested whatever with all the bacteria is getting into their bloodstream, which of course creates liver disease because the poor liver is trying to clean the blood. So all of these animals go to slaughter very sick. Um, So, it's not what they were meant to eat, and the only reason that we're doing this—and this is where it gets more complicated—so 1950 is really the beginning of factory farming. World War Two, you know, they had already figured out the Haber-Bosch process in World War One. By World War Two, they're cranking uh, out all this just nitrogen a, to use to make. Just
4: a note. the uh, uh, Haber-Bosch process is the way to produce nitrogen uh, industrially from uh, oil products, right?
3: Exactly. Yes, and in World War One, the um, German root to uh the f- they were using bat guano or seagull droppings or something that were in I think Argentina. There were huge caves of this and that's what they were using to make munitions. And the, the route for the Germans got cut off uh, I think by the you know the English and the United States or whatever that couldn't get to it anymore. Um so the chemists were working double time to try to figure out how can we make nitrogen ourselves so that we can keep fighting this war. And they did figure it out. Franz Haber was the guy who did it. So, And it's actually interesting to read about Franz, Franz Haber, what happened to him, because he was a Jew. Ultimately, he was killed by the Nazis, even though he created this thing that they really needed. You know, it ended very, very badly for him, um, you know, being involved in the scientific world. And his wife actually committed suicide because of what he had done. Um, he created mustard gas, and some of the really toxic gases that were used to kill people on the front, and she couldn't stand it. She was also a, um, a, a scientist, and she killed herself. Um, she just couldn't, it was unbearable to her what, what this man was doing. But, you know, having done all these wonderful war services, he was then put to death by his own country for being Jewish. I mean, it mm-hmm. so like this story just had no good ending anywhere that you look at it. His son also mm-hmm. committed suicide, which is just completely heartbreaking. Like the next generation still was a mess, mm-hmm. all of this just death and destruction, right? I mean, just the saddest, saddest story. Anyway, this was who invented the haber process, so yes. So by night by World War II they've got it down to a, really down to a science. They're cranking out all this nitrogen. The world the the World War ends. So what do you do with all these you know munitions factories? Well, in the United States they turn them into fertilizer factories. And by 1950 the Green Revolution really kicks off. So now they've got all these you know all this nitrogen fertilizer just pouring out of these factories. It all of course ends up in Iowa and Nebraska and you know, the Midwest, what used to be a prairie, and it's dumped all over the place and This mountain of corn is created with this fertilizer. There is so much corn, it's got nowhere to go. And at that point, corn becomes so cheap on the market that it makes economic sense to take cows off of their native habitat, off of their free diet of grass. Grass just grows, right? Um, Mm -hmm. And put them basically in cities. I mean, they're living on concrete floors and horrible buildings, totally crowded conditions. You're packing them into a city, essentially, and feed them this bizarre stuff that they're not meant to eat, and that's corn. And it's only because corn got so cheap. Up to that point, factory farming, it had never existed. I mean, it couldn't exist until corn was that cheap. So the only reason we have factory farming is because of the Green Revolution. It's because of the Haber-Bosch process. So, um, now what happens in the Midwest every year here in the United States, we have this thing called the Farm Bill. And the government gives out these subsidies to farmers, Um, There are six corporations that essentially control the world food supply. And because they have a monopoly, they're able to drive the cost of grain below the cost of production. So no matter how hard these poor farmers work, um, they cannot keep their heads above water. They cannot turn a profit because it's a monopoly system, right? So the grain is super, super cheap on the market. It costs them more than that to actually produce it. So now next year, they have to produce even more to try to make a couple pennies more by producing more, but that just drives the price down even further. So every year, the farmers are in a worse situation. Now, instead of breaking up these monopolies, what the U.S. government does, handmaiden to the corporations, they do this thing called the Farm Bill, and they hand out subsidies. So they'll give the farmers just enough money to stay in business, right? And they do nothing about the fact that this is a a monopoly system around the globe. Um, Mm -hmm. In other countries... And, in fact, in the past, in this country, we had a totally different system. This was not how food was produced, and we didn't let this happen. But, of course, all of that got deregulated under Ronald Reagan in the 1980s, and now farmers are just in this horrible position. The number one cause of death for farmers in this country and in India is suicide, which is very grim, right? It doesn't matter whether you're in a really rich country or a really poor country or somewhere in between. The farmers are in the same condition. They are serfs. And there's no way out. Right? And mm. so they end up killing themselves. I mean it's just horrible. Anyway, that's why we have factory farming. Okay? It's because the corn is so cheap. And the reason it's so cheap is because of the monopoly and because of the um the fossil fuel. And that's the only reason that fossil far- that, that, that that factory farming exists. So mm. the answer is not to um, and the answer is certainly to stop factory farming, I think we can all agree. But the answer is not um to stop consuming that beef for that reason. There are plenty of good reasons not to eat that factory farmed beef. But you're not going to feed hungry people by doing that. Okay? The corn is not being produced so that cows can eat it. It's being overproduced because of the monopoly. Because the farmers mm-hmm. have to produce more every year to try to make a little bit more money so they can pay their mortgages. Okay? That's all that's the only reason all that corn is flooding out of the Midwest every year. It's gotten it ends up feeding cows, but that's Cows are not demanding it, okay? The people who are demanding it is, you know, this terrible market system where they can't even make a profit on what they're producing. That's why mm. there's a surplus of corn. So whether or not you and I eat that beef is completely irrelevant. Those farmers are going to have to keep overproducing as long as this political and economic system has them in that kind of a headlock.
0: Okay. Which
1: is based And on... then what
3: the other thing... Go ahead.
1: No, I was just going to say it's based on greed, ultimately.
3: Absolutely, yeah, and we're going to have to stand down those powerful systems um, to, in order to change this. You know you and I withdrawing from you know that supermarket beef is not going to make a single jot of difference. Now the other half of that equation is, oh, we should give the corn to the people who can't afford to buy food. Okay, so this is a whole nother problem. Why should people in Cambodia or India be dependent on a rich country like the United States for food? I mean, it's kind of insane. They should be able to support themselves. And, in fact, they know how to support themselves. And if you talk to food activists around the world, they'll say the same thing over and over. We know how to feed our people. We need to be left alone to do that. Get your corporations out of our country. Because what happens is those corporations, having bought this incredibly cheap grain that is subsidized by the U.S. government, they do what's called agricultural dumping. So they'll go to a poor country like the Philippines, like Mexico, like wherever, and they flood the market with this cheap grain, and they drive the local farmers out of business, destroy the local economies, and then what happens is these people who were self-sufficient and had land and had a culture and a community are forced off their land. They lose everything, and they have to. then there's this flood of refugees, economic refugees, into the cities. And that's why you have the swollen misery of places like... Um, you know, Mexico City is because all of those farmers were pushed off their land by exactly this process. And then you've got people who think they care about the world saying that this is somehow a good thing. Every time you do agricultural dumping, you are creating just more human misery by driving those farmers out of business. They don't need our cheap grain. That's the last thing you want to do is dump cheap grain around chronically hungry people. They mm-hmm. should be able to support themselves. The only reason they can't is precisely because of cheap American grain. So they've mm-hmm. got this completely backwards, the vegetarians, when they say, oh, that should go to feed hungry people. No, it shouldn't, actually. We should leave them alone because they know how to feed themselves.
0: Is, and, is, it,
1: is it possible if all of the land that is being has been given over to growing grains across the U.S., for example, if all of that was given back to... Uh, cattle to eat grass, would it produce enough meat to feed the population in the absence of most cereals?
3: I can't actually find a reliable statistic on that. Um, Mm. I do know that we are on vast overshoot and there's no way around that. We're going to have to face the fact that there are way too many people on the planet, but that doesn't have to be grim. There are actually ways to fix that, that. In fact, the only way to fix it, I think, is actually to support human rights. But we can talk about that in a minute. This point that mm-hmm. you're making is a really good one. In many, many places, given enough rainfall, you could take the same acre of land, and you could produce one cow's worth of beef. Except you could do it in two really different ways. So the first way is what's been happening, and it's kind of insane. You take this land that's, you know, a nice, lush grassland that includes all sorts of plants and animals on it. So you've got, you know, ground-dwelling birds, you've got small mammals, you've got reptiles, you've got amphibians. Nearby is a stream that's really healthy, That has fish. You've got a water table that recharges every year. It's life, and it could go on forever until the sun burns out. It's all good. Okay, then you come in with a tractor, you rip it all up, you kill all the animals, you push everybody off it, you bear the soil, which means you're destroying it, and then you You put corn on it. So you grow an acre of corn on that land. Um, You're destroying the water table. You destroy the stream. Everybody's dead. Okay, you've got this acre of corn. You can take that acre of corn and feed it to one cow. And at the end of the year, you'll have a really sick cow who had a miserable life, but she's fat and she's ready for market, and then she can be fed to humans and make the people sick as well. But that was the amount of beef that was produced, was one cow on that one acre from corn. Okay, another scenario – same acre of land. You leave it in grass. All those other creatures live there. You've got a healthy water table. The nearby streams are looking good. There's no fossil fuel. You've got a ruminant on it like a cow. This could go on forever. That is a closed loop. Everybody plays a role. At the end of that year, you've got the same amount of beef from that cow. But it's really good beef. She had a good life. That And the life of that place, that biotic community, is completely intact. And you can feed the same number of humans off it. This is true across many, many, many miles (laughs) of land, square miles of land where there's enough rainfall. You have this scenario where you can do one or the other. And we've been doing this totally insane thing on agriculture and factory farming. And at the end of the day, you know, scenario two is the one that just makes sense on every level, but that's not the one we're we're doing. Um, Mm. But it's the same amount of food. And I think that's really what you're asking, is that in many places, yes, you will have the same amount of food, um, but it's healthy food, it's humane food, and it's food that is participating in a very resilient cycle of continuing life. So I don't know why we're doing the other one. I mean, just on the surface, it makes no sense. I mean, I get that there are political and economic reasons that are psychopathic underneath it all, but exactly. even just on a surface level, like, what are these people doing? This is crazy. Mm. Um, so in many places, yes, that is... The only way forward is, you know, to return the grasslands, well, we let the prairies return.
2: You you, you earlier you, you suggested that um this is this is a matter of policy, that this is a choice that is made and it's controlled by a monopoly. I mean, did, do they have even half of the sort of insight or oversight that you're sharing with us today? I, I, is it willingly being done? I mean I I cannot imagine the, the, the board of board of directors of Monsanto sitting down to eat
1: anything that they sell. No. To they don't well yeah. it was it was revealed that in Monsanto uh cafeteria they sell organic food. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They only sell organic food. And everybody, uh, apparently in in government as well, in in Congress, the the restaurant in Congress or wherever, where they all go to eat, it's all organic food. Yet they're all signing bills and passing bills, passing bills into law that allows, you know, gives the crap mm. to people, you know.
3: Congress also, they have a single-payer health care plan, all the members of Congress. Mm -hmm. I mean, the irony in that, they're shutting down the government now because they hate Obamacare so much, but they get a single-payer health care system their whole lives.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah.
3: Anyway, um, no, I don't know. The whole thing is so—it's just completely psychopathic, isn't it? I, I have no explanation on the on, a, on an emotional level as to what these people' motivation is. They well, have it highly just, rationalized, clearly, and they're only totally being it. rewarded. I mean, they're making so much money doing this, but
0: it's just gotta no, be you something they love.
1: <laughs> you it's like you so, said psychopathic. two points: are psychopathy and money. That, yeah. thats their god. That's the bottom line for them, and nothing else matters. And like i said they they look after themselves and screw the people, you know and yeah. it's
5: really sad because you mentioned earlier how basically the majority of human beings are not for that are not in that mindset they don't want to destroy they don't want war, they don't want the system
2: they don't you know, naturally and, dominate
5: and yeah exactly yeah. they don't want to, they don't want to destroy i mean they they would probably follow some kind of you know. A healthy harmonious lifestyle if they were left to uh, to to choi- to choose, but the problem is here you have and correct me if i 'm wrong Leah, but here you have people who would be well intentioned to begin with they it's uh, well some psychologists say it's one percent of the population are genetically psychopaths, imagine that mm-hmm. a majority of those are in power and are making these decisions, and you have these people who are willing actually paying for their poison because they go to the supermarket and pay for that, and then they have to depend on the pharmaceuticals, you know, and I don't want to get all conspiratorial and stuff, but it it really looks like that, doesn't it? I mean, it's just a tiny little group of people who are making these laws, um, making poor countries buy their own seeds, and Mm. if you don't buy the patented seeds, you're screwed forever, and, you know, it's just a cycle, And, and if only people could actually choose for once and decide and and. And realize that it's really a handful of these leaders that are, or you know, whatever the the ones behind this monopoly.
3: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I, it's it's bad out there.
2: Well, that that um, that little piece of history you gave about the explosion of the use of fertilizers after the Second World War is fascinating. So, the, World War Two ends, and they have all these munitions left over. So what do we do with them? Uh, I can imagine at the time it's it's a convenient, you know, solution to a temporary problem. But look what it's led to, one thing after the next. And we've got the situation today where the topsoil is so shot that the the, the grains that were already bad enough so they tell us can't grow. So here's our genetically enhanced version. Take this and this will solve the the food hunger crises that were caused by, you know, their predecessors. So it's like we've gone further and further into this sort of Mm cul-de-sac. Okay. So in terms of the big picture, what can people do? We don't know, but maybe there are some solutions for those of us who do care and who do want to improve our own lives and the lives of fl- flora and fauna around us. Mm-hmm. So maybe we can get into some some solutions. How do you – you, I think I think you've described yourself as a farmer here. Do, do you farm at home or
3: um, – Yeah, I have um, five acres and I have um, goats and I'm going to be getting chickens and ducks very soon. Um, and I have a great big dog. (laughs) So, yeah, and a garden. So, yeah, and I haven't lived here very long, or this place I've just moved to, but I'm going to be putting in some fruit trees as well. So, um, yeah, and before that, I've also lived on other smaller farms where we did chickens and eggs and other stuff too. So I have certainly raised my own food. I I get the idea, you know, the the cost of all of this, both
0: Mm -hmm. emotionally and
3: economically. It's it's a lot. You know, people don't realize what goes into it, but... Anyway, um, solutions, yes, I do think that there are some, uh, both on the big picture and on the smaller picture. So on the very biggest picture, global warming is, you know, coming down. And some by some estimates, 400,000 people have already died due to planetary climate chaos. And this is only going to get worse, right? So mm-hmm. the best thing that we can do for our planet is to take the trashed out grasslands that have been destroyed by agriculture, and let the prairies come home. We just let that grass come back. Um, If we were to do that on only 75% of the world's destroyed prairies, within 15 years, we could sequester all of the carbon, all of it, that's been um, released since the beginning of the Industrial Age. That's an incredible statistic, but you have to remember what prairies do. Those grasses are really good at building soil. That's their main job, and the building block, of course, is carbon. So they suck the carbon out of the air, and they build soil, and now it's sequestered. In fact, just this morning, I was reading a fabulous article about all the abandoned farmland in Russia. You know, the farmers have left for the cities, and the farms just lie there. And, of course, what happens is they turn back into either prairie or forest pretty quickly. Um, And somebody did the calculations on the amount of carbon that has been sucked back into the soil, because simply because people stopped farming in Russia. And it's, it's just an astronomical amount. Something like, I don't know, 10% of all of their industrial carbon has now been resequestered sequestered just by leaving it alone.
0: It was something mm-hmm. really huge.
3: Um, don't, don't quote me on that exact number, but it was really stunning. And so right there. I mean, we, they didn't even do it on purpose. And, you know, it started to happen. So that's our best hope. Um, the United States, we could do this even just east of the Mississippi River. Um, in the first year, the United States could become a carbon sequestering nation. That's a really extraordinary statistic, but it's all true. And just remember what prairies do. They build soil. right? That's their main job. So that's one, mention, one spot of hope. Go ahead.
1: You mentioned that um, we're going to have to face the fact that there are too many people on the planet. Is that hard and fast in terms of a problem? Um,
3: yes. I, I, well, for me, I don't see this as Some people are very terrified to take this on as a concept um, to the point where they're just in denial about it. But I think we should face it squarely because the solutions that help the planet are also really crucial for human rights. So it's not humans against the planet. It's humans with the planet. That's the only thing that gets us to the world that we need. The number one thing you can do to drop the birth rate around the globe, the number one thing, is teach a girl to read. It is Mm -hmm. that simple. When women and girls have that much more power over their lives, they choose to have fewer children. The number one thing is simply educating girls, just giving them a basic education. Um, When girls are educated, the entire community does better. They call it the multiplier effect. Um, Because when girls are better, young women do better. And when young women do better, their children do better. And then the whole community does better. And so Mm. it just goes around in this circle that is lifting everybody out of poverty. But women around the globe have very little control over the uses to which you know dominating men put our bodies. So as it stands now, somewhere around half of all pregnancies are either unwanted or unplanned. All we have to do is give women control over their bodies and the birth rate will be cut in half. That to me mm-hmm. is extraordinary. And we should care about that anyway because women are human and we deserve human rights and that starts with, you know, No, I don't want to have sex. No, I don't want to have a baby. No, I want to get an education right now. Like, that's so basic to anybody's life.
0: Mm -hmm. And in
3: countries where they've done this, it's worked. The really incredible example is Iran, because this is a country that's controlled by, you know, essentially a religious theocracy, very conservative. But they crunched the numbers, and they saw they had a birth rate that was pretty much the biological limit, upper limit. And they realized that within a generation, there wasn't going to be, like, anywhere to sit or stand, let alone... Like water to drink or food, and they had a problem, so what are we going to do? So they had a huge meeting with everybody who cared about the issue, and they developed a multi pronged approach but at the very center of it was this idea that you had to educate girls and you had to give women some control over their lives so they first, they offered birth control to everybody you had to if you were going to get a marriage license, you had to go to a birth <clears> control <throat> class um and so and it was free, it was freely available and they in the cities they set up little they called health houses, like pretty much on every street corner you could go and get free birth control. Um, But it had to be culturally appropriate because if it was just for birth control, nobody was going to go. So they had to pretend that you could go there and also get your blood pressure checked or whatever, you know, get a blood draw for cholesterol. It wasn't true. I mean, everybody kind of knew what it was for, but it worked. So people actually used it. And then in rural areas, they had mobile, um, sort of mobile units that went from village to village and just talked to everybody. You know, and then they had, in every neighborhood, they had women who signed up to do this, sort of who were elders in the community, who were trained in you know different methods of birth control and whatnot. And they just went house to house and talked to everybody. Do you want birth control? Do you understand birth control? What are your questions? What can we get for you? And um, so that was really huge, was just to give everybody access. A real turning point was when they got the religious community on board, and they got the, the big religious leaders to put out a statement saying that, um, there was nothing in the Quran against having a vasectomy or having a tubal ligation. Um, so it was fine. If you, if you have enough children and you can't provide for more, that's really important to God, and you're allowed to say you're done. And so, like, literally overnight, men were lining up around the block to get vasectomies because they didn't want to have 12 children either. You know, like, it was their lives as well that were being impacted by this. So that made a huge difference. And then they had a whole conversation going across the country where um, they got some of the the soap opera writers and the TV drama, you know, the writers of these shows to include talks about birth control and family size um, in the stories. So you would have, you know, a younger woman talking to her mom or something. Oh, I don't know. We're going to get married. What do I do about birth control? And they would have a whole talk about it just very openly. So they made the conversation Possible for everyone. And they had billboards about it. So it was a huge public education thing. They made dramatic efforts to increase, increase female literacy. So the girls in school, it went from 25% to 75% within five years, which is incredible. And so keeping girls in school, like everybody understood this was important. Um, and then there were, if you had one or two children as a couple, you got all kinds of really good benefits from the state. You could get like a food stamp thing for food and various other daycare stuff, if you've got three children, then all the benefits went away. They didn't penalize you, but you didn't get any good stuff. So there definitely was, you know, a little bit of a stick involved with the carrot. But, um, you know, it wasn't like China where they had these just god-awful human rights horrors. It was just, oh, well, no more goodies. And all of that together within five years, their birth rate dropped to replacement levels. I mean, these are things, again, that we should care about anyway. People deserve to control their reproductive lives. Girls Mm -hmm. deserve to stay in school. Nobody should be getting married at age 12. Um, And that's all they did. They changed all of that very quickly, which also shows that um, people's desire for children is really plastic. You know, it was actually very malleable. And when presented with facts and other alternatives, they stopped having 12 children. Nobody actually wanted Mm -hmm. to do that with themselves. So it worked. And it worked in a really beautiful way. that gave everybody more power and control and more human rights. So this is why I say it's not humans against the planet. It's humans with the planet is the only way we're going to go forward.
4: Yeah, Uh, Leah, um, allow me to move one step backward about overpopulation. In your book, you explain that since the 19th century, basically, we've been running on phantom carrying capacity. We managed to have such a huge... Human population seven billion maybe, because indirectly writing oil. Can you exp- so even if we move back now, transform all the monocrop annual farming land into uh, grazing prairies, we won't be able to feed the seven billion people no. because they come out from a phantom carrying capacity.
1: So can you expect? Well, she just pre- offered a, an explanation that or a. a, a- a solution to that which is essentially women stop having so many babies so that people who die off are greater than children who are born so over a certain period of time you'll have a population decline that's the long-term goal
0: yeah
3: it would take two or three generations but it could absolutely yeah. be done we don't have to have mass starvation and you know these terrible dystopian movies, you know, Mad Max or whatever. We all have these terrible ideas about, you know, the collapse. It doesn't have to be that way. We could take control of the situation, you know, as a society, as a species, and decide that, you know, for all these really good reasons, nobody needs to have this many children, and we'll just have one or two each, and that's it. And very naturally, the population would simply decline, and we could once again... Um, live in a really sustainable way. So as the human population shrank, the prairies and the forests could return, and we could go back to simply getting our food from inside those living communities rather than imposing ourselves across them. And I think this is a very doable Mm -hmm. project. I mean, you can see how it would work. Um, And there are countries that have already tried some of these things and seen how successful they are. We just need the political understanding and then the political will to set them in motion. And that's the problem.
1: Yeah, yeah. proceeding all of those plans, then we need a revolution.
2: <laughs> yeah, a we big do. <laughs>
0: uh,
1: yeah, we can do all
2: these things. We just need this. Oh, okay. <laughs> but yeah, I, I get your point. I mean, humans. I mean, we're we're, we're creative creatures. We come up with solutions. We tried and tested a number of things that, that have worked. It's just that we have this 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 thing stalking us, you know, where for every step forward. It just wants to drag you back too.
1: Yeah.
2: For, for for every country that that's moving towards, you know, progressive, relatively secular, edu- you know, understand the value of education, trying to really inform its people, you've got two countries that have been bombed back to the Stone Age, a Taliban-type clique take over, and this is this continues. You know, this is almost like for for every let's say good missionary that comes out of the West. There's two. There are two players out there bombing and taking people and countries back into a medieval existence. I don't know. It just. I have I have a lot of faith in in people and what they can do, but yeah, short of a revolution against this this thing, <laughs> the beast, um, all these all the, the solutions that. I mean, for something like, like this to, to really work, it would need to come from the top, right?
3: We're going to need all the institutions that now yeah. control society around the globe to get on board, yeah. and they're not. You've got, mm-hmm. for instance, the Catholic Church, which mm-hmm. can't even wrap its mind around condoms. I mean, it's ridiculous. Yeah. You've got men in dresses telling women what to do with their bodies. I mean, yeah. it's just yeah. completely absurd, right? Yeah. I and mean, yeah, yeah, you know, all cost, Condoms
1: around right? Yeah, exactly
0: right. Um, (laughs) Switch
1: that around. The solution to the the Catholic problem.
0: Yeah, well,
3: the worst of them are sort of, you know, they're not—at least they're not reproducing at the top level. But they seem to have everybody else in their thrall. The thing is, that's so funny about the Catholics Mm. is that it's that you know these really heavily Catholic nations have a negative birth rate. Clearly, people are using birth control.
0: I mean, they're obviously Mm. using birth
3: control. (laughs) You know, like. Nobody's listening to the Pope. He should just shut up for a while. He should listen to them, you know. But anyway, I mean, I hear your point. There's all these fundamentalists of whatever stripe around the globe, and they control the resources, and they let men control women, and, you know, they control the money, and they control the power structure, and a lot of them are just plain psychopaths. And we've Mm -hmm. let them. We've rewarded their behavior. Rather than disallowing it, we reward it. And that's the problem with systems like capitalism and like civilization and like patriarchy. Mm -hmm. The scum rises, you know, and they get rewarded. Mm -hmm. Um, They should have been thrown off the ice flow when they were four, and it was clear they weren't going to play well with others no matter what. Mm -hmm.
0: Mm -hmm. Or at the
3: very least, not given any power to do anything. You know, we can throw some some fruit scraps from the distance, but we don't. Instead, they rule the world. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, this is why it's so important that you're doing the work you're doing, your publishing house, you know, you put out your books about psychopaths, and that's why I wrote books. Mm-hmm. I want people to understand the scale of the problem, the organization of the problem, so that we can talk about real solutions.
4: And uh, <clears throat> while thinking about it, I'm not sure the solution can come from the top. Well, because as you said, uh, psychopaths are in power, and uh, when you read about psychopathy, one of two main features of this um, strange uh, psychological profiles is uh, uh, A, the power, the quest for more power more money, and B uh, enjoying the suffering of others. And through farming finally uh, I realized that uh, they reached those two goals. They've managed to transform the whole population into drug addicts literally walking deads who are willing to pay for the drug that destroy them so they get the money and they get the suffering of others. So it's, a, from a psychopathic point of view, it's a, farming is a great plan. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, it's a pretty perfect system. Yeah. But see, the, only, the only good thing is that there are always people who do not want to be slaves. Like you yeah. pick the period in history, there's always a resistance. Yes. And I have to believe, with all of life at stake, that the resistance will build...
4: Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's a double challenge here. I agree with you, I think, uh, if the change comes, it will come from the bottom, from the, the mass movement, from people who have enough of, uh, of suffering, basically. And uh, there's a double challenge, because A, there is the, the, you need this growing awareness of the, the system you are living in, this uh, psychopathic dimension, the real nature of your elites, and B, you have to be willing to go beyond your addiction. That is uh, uh, blinding your thinking. That is making you uh, subjective and uh, not seeing things as they are. So there's a double challenge to um, to overcome.
1: I I just wanted to uh, investigate a little a little theory that that I have and um, see what you think, Lear, uh, about vegetarians and vegans. And in terms of, uh, as I kind of mentioned earlier on, the way that they seem to have almost uh, a greater affinity for animals than they do for humans such as the strength of their 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 disgust and their abhorrence at the at the idea of killing animals and eating them it's almost um i i'm just wondering if if a you think there might be uh, a kind of a an insoluble problem there in terms of a certain number of people on the planet who actually, uh, when it comes down to it, would say animals are more important than humans and let the humans die and let the animals stay. No matter what happens, no matter what solution was presented to them, they would never, ever come around to the idea of killing another animal as being okay. And, um, yeah, well, maybe that, that that's
0: the first one.
3: Well, you know, on one level it doesn't actually matter whether people hold an ideology like that so strongly because they don't really have any power. There's nothing they can do with an ideology like that. And honestly, I think the solution is pretty simple. They just need to grow their own food and they'll see. And that's how I learned. I just tried it myself and I could see that no matter which way I turned, it dead-ended with a dead animal. You know, and at Mm. one point in the slug battle, I just gave up. It was like I couldn't mm. kill them. I didn't know what to do. So I went to the store and I bought some lettuce and some broccoli instead of growing it. And mm. for one second, it felt like it was a relief. It was like, oh, thank God, I'll just buy it instead. And I stood there literally holding that head of lettuce. And I, it was this moment of just grow up, just grow up. It's ridiculous. Mm. Do you think the people who made this lettuce didn't kill slugs? mm of course they killed insects yeah. to get you this lettuce. They probably killed way more. They probably used mm. really horrible chemicals and killed birds and reptiles and mammals as well as just a few slugs. You are so fooling yourself if you think there was not death in every stage of the growing of this lettuce. And it was just, it was a really hard moment, but it was reality. And it was mm. so much better to just face it finally and to stop running from it. It's like, my life depends on death. You just have to stand and face it. So I think mm-hmm. that if you know there are people who are who are in that same mindset that I was in, I think that it's just a really simple solution: grow your own food, and you'll see. There's no way yeah. out of this, you know.
1: The reason I the reason I thought of that was because um, the idea that some people, some human beings, are slightly different than others, let's say, in some kind of <clears throat> fairly fundamental way that you know. Not everybody's created equal or not everybody's created the same in some way because I've also noticed that, maybe I'm wrong in this, but I get the impression that some people on a vegetarian diet do a lot better than others.
3: I think if you're a vegetarian, it's easier than being a vegan because at least you're getting some animal fats and Mm. some of the fat-soluble vitamins. So you can limp along a lot longer on that diet. The vegan Mm. is just... You just fall apart. I mean, there's no way around it. But the vegetarians can last longer. Um, are there and, examples choose, of
1: healthy vegans? No. <laughs> I'm sorry, no? but there
3: just aren't. You okay. can do it for a while. And, you know, when you're in your 20s, you can get away with
0: pretty much mm. anything.
3: But by the time you're 30, the rubber's going to hit the road. And I will say for these people, even in their 20s, their bodies were built on animal products. They were not vegan pregnancies. You know, their moms yeah. ate animal
0: products
3: and throughout their childhoods of course they ate milk and they had eggs and they had hamburgers and then you know for a few years they decide they're going to try this well go ahead Um, but you know eventually you're on drawdown the whole time i mean you're just sucking nutrients out of your body and eventually you run
1: out yeah there was a case in france actually a few years ago where a a mother who had uh, just she was a vegan all throughout her pregnancy and, and beforehand and um while she was uh, breastfeeding the baby, the baby eventually died and they blamed it yeah. on her diet. And, yep. and the, the, the breast milk and her diet while while the baby was, uh, uh, before the baby was born, the kind of nutrients that the mother was getting were not sufficient to, to, to feed the baby. And then afterwards when she was breastfeeding, it was uh, not sufficient either and the baby died. And I mean, that was a pretty damning indictment of a vegan diet, you know.
3: Yeah, these stories pop up in the news occasionally, but it's good to remember that your breast milk is only as good as your nutrition. So if Mm. you're not eating a nutrient-dense diet, there's no way to produce that milk. So, yes, I would want to say mother's milk is always best, but in the case of somebody who's a vegan, no, mother's milk Mm. is not best.
4: Mother's milk is
3: starvation for that child.
4: Uh, Yeah, I just wanted to comment on what you said previously. I think there's uh, indeed a lot of hypocrisy and um, vegetarian build up their good conscience on this hypocrisy. As long as they don't see what is beyond the vegetarian product they consume for cheap, finally they easily access a uh, good conscience. And uh, if they knew what was beyond beyond the beyond the pro broccoli, all the suffering, the destroy wildlife fauna and flora, the nitrogen, the fertilizers, and all the the death. That is involved in this uh, in this broccoli, they would realize that um, it's not as rosy as they think. And that reminds me when I was uh, when I was vegetarian, the only meat I was consuming actually when when I was going spear fishing. So I was spending hours in the in the sea trying to get a fish. You know, and uh, it's cold, it's tiring. You get the fish, you kill it, which is uh, not very appealing, and uh, you carry it. You have to eviscerate it, etc., etc. It's a lot of work, and uh, and you really feel really bad killing it. And uh, it's as if there's an inversion of values. When you eat the broccoli, you feel good. Okay, I didn't kill any animal. It's all clean. It's all nice. And although you induce a lot of destruction, and on the other side, when you kill a fish by yourself, like a hunter or fisherman, you feel really bad because you face death right in, in front of your eyes. Although, in this case, that might be the less harmful way of feeding yourself, because ultimately, uh, then the, the last question, the ultimate question, is okay. It's either him or me, because if I don't eat, I die. You know, if I hit him, he dies. So death will cannot be brought out of the equation. Mm-hmm.
3: Yes, I think yeah. you're exactly right. It's,
1: and, and it's I a hard th- moment. I think veg- vegans and vegetarians really need to realize that <clears throat> by supporting. Modern agriculture, they're supporting a system that is killing a lot of animals. Mm. Um, It's also damaging and ultimately killing a lot of human beings because by encouraging, uh, by supporting modern agriculture, they're supporting everybody around the world eating grains, which is causing all sorts of modern illnesses and diseases, killing a lot of people, and they're also supporting a system uh, a hierarchy at the top of the pyramid uh, that that controls that modern agriculture uh, that is closely tied to corporations and government and military that is also killing a lot of people around the world in a yeah. very direct way yeah. you know so all the way around they 're supporting a very destructive system uh, that kills everybody ultimately uh, all all forms of life on this planet from the bottom all the way to the top uh, if humans are at the top <laughs> but um it it's not hard to see how
2: as an ideology it's it's attractive for people who care who are upset with what they see happening but who want don't to do something but who don't think this is and it maybe you, can't think yeah it comes back to how much of, of the reality are you seeing Pierre's but what you said pierre reminds me of that saying out of sight out of mind and i don't i think it applies across the board to to everyone you know People don't realize where their food comes from, so they don't think about it. And it's not just vegans, vegetarians. Um, if it, it, L- 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 you said yourself a few minutes ago, and I think it sums up your book. Uh, in a, for for me anyway, the lasting impression is that it's about growing up, um, and it's not something that will leave you in despair and despondent. It's life affirming mm-hmm. because you learn some important facts of life. Mm-hmm but do give you hope um, and give you ideas. I mean, we have you here today and mm-hmm. it's great to hear you speaking because, you know, you've clearly, uh, you're impassionate about it. You've gone through that process. You've gone through it and you understand. You see more reality and you see more potential in people. Mm-hmm. You see more solutions.
1: It's about facing a, an unpleasant reality, there, the, the facts of the reality in which we live and the life that we live and um, and getting out of your... Fairy, fairy, love and light kind of um, uh, idealistic yeah. way of viewing the world that blocks out a lot of the yeah. reality behind the scenes and that's what's going up's so quite... Yeah, I've
3: like, actually... I, mean, I I...
0: Go, go ahead. ahead. Go ahead, go ahead.
3: <laughs> no, you go ahead, you finish.
5: I just wanted to thank you, actually, because you might not know it, because not everybody will have written to you. But we have thousands of people in our forum, and they actually, probably a few hundred, have tried to uh, switch, change their diet, and the effects. And the the amazing thing is that everybody has autoimmune issues, you know, all kinds of problems, psychological or or physical. And the effects have been amazing, I mean, including us, and um, it's just it's just amazing. And I and I don't think maybe you you know about everybody you're helping with your work. So, you know, maybe people, if you're listening and you haven't read this book, it's called The Vegetarian Myth by Lear Keith, and
4: you really, really should read it.
5: And it's in French, too.
4: Yeah, it's in French. Uh, We translated it, and we're very proud of it. We started that about two years ago because we are so excited by the book. It's uh, very eye-opening, and I can share testimony. I was vegetarian for 11 years, as I said, and uh, after those 11 years, I got uh, really sick, and I got two brain cancers that are considered the most incurable phase, grade 3 cancers. And... uh, uh, it, it was at the time when I changed diet and uh, I stopped being vegetarian and uh, it, uh, this problem occurred about uh, four years ago and I'm still alive today and mortality rate is something like 80%. So well, you cannot make statistics or rules from one uh, isolated case, but uh, I can testify that I think this uh, diet change contributed, contributed significantly to uh, to my survival and to my uh, good health. So, yeah, thank you for spreading this uh, very important message, I think.
0: Well,
3: thanks for sharing your story. That's that's pretty profound.
4: Mm-hmm. The
3: thing about cancer in particular is, you know, one thing we know for cancer, absolutely true, is that it eats sugar.
0: Mm-hmm. So if, yeah.
3: if you take all the sugar, and that includes grain, because it's really all it is, all mm-hmm. the sugar out of your diet, you will simply starve those cancer cells. And mm-hmm. this is why cancer is called one of the diseases of civilization. hunter gatherers don't get cancer. It's only Mm -hmm. the agriculturalists that do. And we consider it sort of part of life because everybody gets it. But it's not true. Even in the 1950s, in the Canadian Medical Journal, there was an article about, it started, the first sentence was something like, well, we all know that the Eskimos don't get cancer. And no, you know, they eat, look what they eat. It's, you know, sea mammals and, you know, fish and there's That's no sugar nice. in that diet, and they don't get cancer. Um, of course, everything's changed now. Their traditional life ways have been pretty well destroyed, but you know, you could watch cancer spread You know, as what Weston Price called the you know, displacing foods of modern commerce spread around the globe. Um, but this is not normal. It's not natural. We're not all supposed to get cancer. And even just that one fact that sugar is what cancer eats, that can save so many lives just knowing that. You know, take the grain out, take the sugar out and see
4: what happens. Yeah, and no, we have to emphasize for, for some listeners who, who might not know that, that uh, grains, starch, uh, all that is uh, carbs, carbohydrates that will eventually be uh, transformed into sugar. So sugar is not only the sweet stuff that we put in uh, into your coffee.
3: Yeah, every last molecule of it is broken down into a simple sugar so you can call it a complex carbohydrate, but by the time it's done with your body, mm-hmm. it's been turned into a simple sugar. And every last molecule has to be dealt with by your pancreas and by your insulin receptors.
0: So mm-hmm. it's,
3: it's the same thing, you know. The amount of complex carbohydrate that we are being told to eat in the United States, we've got this food pyramid, you know, where at the bottom, Your the base of your diet is supposed to be carbohydrate. It adds up to two cups of sugar a day. I mean, that's how much sugar wow. they're telling us to eat.
0: It's Crazy. insane.
3: The human body was never meant to process mm. that much sugar. It's no wonder everybody's so sick. Yeah. I don't know how it is where you are, but everybody here just looks terrible. Oh, mm-hmm. Everybody's sick. Everybody it's has the diabetes it's... and the heart disease and the cancer.
2: It's mm-hmm. terrible. It's global.
5: And, Leah, you know, um, I really feel bad for those people who are, who you know, they have good intentions, but they want to, uh, they claim that you can live without eating, and just, you know, oh. breathe or whatever, and stare at this. And I like I like to know what you tell them, because for me it was like, well, you know, if I'm going to do that, yes, I won't be killing anything, but I won't be thinking, I won't be doing anything with my life. What's the purpose of, you know, having that kind of life when you can't do anything to make a little difference in the world, you know? I mean, but do, what do you tell these people who say, you know, no, I do believe that you can just do sun gazing and, you know, live from... <laughs> in here.
3: These people have an eating disorder. They are... (laughs) And seriously, they need help. They have found an ideology that supports their eating disorder and there's actually a word for that. They call it orthorexia nervosa, Uh like orthodoxy. So orthorexia Mm -hmm. nervosa. And it's the same thing. And it's the same biochemistry going on where people get addicted to their own starvation. And there is help, but they need help. I mean, And there's only so much you can say to people who are that sick, because it's just a mental illness Mm -hmm. at that point. Everybody in their lives who cares about them, their family, their friends, those are the people who need to intervene. I mean, They need an intervention, and they need to go to a hospital, because it's it's just insanity. Mm -hmm. If you cannot live without calories, you need energy. You are not a plant. You can't photosynthesize. Mm -hmm.
5: So there's not much I can say. We've seen a couple that give lectures and stuff, you know, because they Uh, can survive for like three months. And they think they feel mm-hmm. great, and then three months down the road, you hear that they ended up at the hospital, and people are still
0: believe.
1: Yeah, oh. uh, oh, you hear that they've been they've been sneaking Mars bars and yeah. uh,
4: Snickers bars yeah. On, yeah. when no one was looking, you know. What is misleading as well? There's not always a direct, immediate correlation between the food you eat and your health and your state of health. Uh, That's what we call silent disease metabolic processes that build up over years and years and you look healthy for decades maybe and one day you fall down and uh, you drop dead from an aneurysm, a stroke, a whatever kind of disease. So it's not because um, a vegetarian looks healthy or whatever, vegetarian or not vegetarian. It's not because someone looks healthy now that is on the right path, nutritionally speaking. Well, yeah, it, the
3: thing to remember is that you're, you know, you're on drawdown. When you're eating a diet that doesn't contain all the nutrients you need, you know, the minerals, the fat-soluble vitamins, the fat itself, it's all being taken out of some organ or tissue in your body. Yeah. And there's only so long that that can go on. You know.
1: Yeah. It's it's it seems to me that that. Ultimately, the overview is that the powers that be have instituted a system here on the planet Earth where uh, the food, the basic nutrients that keep people alive, are designed to kill them, or keep or keep s- them so s- sick s- that s- they s- can't s- s- up s- keep them s- so sick and and mentally fogged that they can't do anything about it. That's a conspiracy theory, but you know it fits. But it also doesn't necessarily have to be a conspiracy in the sense that it could just be a natural evolution of the kind of psychopathic mindset where they mm. they just, you know, it's kind of monkey see, monkey do. It's like, we want this, we're going to go and get it, and to hell with the results. And if you let that perpetuate, you're going to have terrible end results. You're going to have destruction and entropy and a collapse of the system, ultimately.
3: I know um, for the ancient Aztec society, which was a corn-based beyond civilization...
2: Beyond, or not so much beyond, but aside from an actual eventual collapse or falling off a cliff or whatever, something that strikes me is that even now, you'll talk to a lot of people who see a lot of stuff that goes on on the planet, but they still fall back on the belief, it is a belief, i.e. it's not true, that things are still good, that they're they're as as good as they ever have been. I mean, there are 8 billion of us. You know, more and more people have access to basic resources, food, and so on. But what what quality of life do people have? You know, it's it's kind of like
1: a uh, slave nation.
2: It's slave nation, but but at the same time, you, you have um it, yeah. In order for it to remain so, they need. They need to kind of roast tinted glasses ideologies to paper over the reality. But uh, I
1: think when, as Lear mentioned earlier on, when you say the the morphine from, yeah. from gluten and the morphine that you get in case, in case of morphine, I think it is, I mean, people are eating wheat and dairy every day of their lives, most mm-hmm. people in the Western world, so they're drugged up. And they're loving it, you know. know, uh, To some extent, obviously, people are having hardship as well and stuff, but it takes the edge off it for a lot of people. I mean, food, I don't think you can discount the effect that food has on people in terms of keeping them content and quiet. And that's why we always say that you really only get a revolution, a real revolution that has any effect when people go hungry, Mm -hmm. when you take away their drug, essentially. And we're talking about drugs here, morphine, or a morphine version of Mm -hmm. morphine.
4: Yeah, well, <clears> opioid <throat> keeps you alive enough to be a slave, yeah. but not alive enough to free yourself. Mm-hmm. You,
1: you, are, we, are we being, being too uh, pessimistic here? <laughs>
3: well, I, I think at I think this actually, point, I think it's
1: she's it's gone for some reason. I think she hung no, up can you hear me? Up. Oh well. Can you hear oh, me? Um,
3: can you hear me? I
1: could try, that's um, a shame. I was okay. going to ask her.
3: Oh no! We'll can see you see hear if we me? Can get her back.
2: Yeah. I'm curious to know what kind of what what her diet is like now. I mean, she's talking about animal fats and meat, so she's presumably eating a lot of meat.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, wonder, she's heard of the ketogenic diet, yeah. which we discussed in the show, um, because it's not just that we've been eating a hey, the natural diet all this time.
1: There is a natural diet, one that does fit. Okay, so something's gone wrong where the people listening can, can hear, hear in the air, but we can't for some reason. Oh, shoot. Oh. That's, that's blog talk radio, you know. Uh, Lear, if you're listening, maybe if you just kind of hang up, and I'll call you back. Okay, okay so uh, carry on, Neil.
2: Well, yeah, it's, I mean, it's been given this name, ketogenic diet. That sounds like, what is that? But it's basically the natural diet, or would have been for hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years, for developing humans. And so much as we've been eating incorrectly, so to speak, thanks to agriculture over the last 10,000 years, um, the science today has taken us full circle to showing what real
1: nutrition can be and should be. Hang on a second. Are you there, Lear?
0: I'm here. Can you hear me?
1: Lear, I think we're having a problem here where... um, We can't hear her, but listeners can. And she can hear us, Lear can hear us, and um, listeners can hear her, but we can't hear her. So we're going to have to, Lear, listen, if you're listening, we're going to have to probably just end it there because, I don't know, if this is our our blog talk video, we're going to complain about this terrible service. Anyway, if you're listening, thanks for being on the show. It was great. Uh, And um, maybe we'll have you back on again at another time and we can discuss these issues further. And
5: sounds like a so plan thank you thank From you all for all thanks. your work
1: yes thank, thank you Lier. thank you all and all thanks right. to I all the listeners
5: to
2: We're okay
1: getting at the end anyway okay so do you want to finish your point Neil?
2: Um, no let, let's leave it there I just want to thank Claire for, for coming on thank you for writing your book thank you for standing up and thank you for caring we need more
1: people like you and thank you for the hope yeah alright folks we're going to leave it there for this week um, you're all here on the show outro we can't even hear the show outro so blog talk we're going to get it in the neck um, until next week uh, have a good one thanks for our chatters, and our listeners and our few callers that we didn't get to talk to uh, we'll be back next week to get another show and you will see what it is sometime during the week and the usual
0: Why does that happen? That's terrible.